This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Adidas and the all-new line of Terex outdoor gear, now with zero-dye fabrics. So there's many issues surrounding the sustainability of shoe production. And when we think about materials, the dye process is definitely one of the most resource-intensive processes that the shoe goes through. This is Jessica Goddard. I'm a colour and materials designer in the footwear department for Adidas Terex. When you think of a classic pair of Adidas shoes, they're probably all white or some other bright color with that iconic three-stripe logo on the side. But what we don't really talk about is what it took to make them so white or red or whatever color they are. It could potentially have been through two different processes. So the first being a conventional dyeing method, which of course uses heat, energy, and water. Or potentially it's also been through a process of bleaching, which of course uses chemicals in order to achieve the right level of whiteness. With a zero-dye shoe, that whole process has been eliminated. Zero-dye shoes are made from materials in their natural color, and that's no small thing. Dyeing fabrics requires heating up water, adding dye, and then flushing that water away, because it's dirty. By eliminating the dyeing process, every two pounds of zero-dye fabrics save a gallon of water. And so there is a process in which it's been washed, but because that water hasn't got any dye in it, that water is able to be used again and again, like a closed-loop cycle. What you end up with is a nearly white trail runner that has a completely different relationship with dirt and mud than a normal white shoe. These shoes start out white, but they're not supposed to be white. And yes, they realize that that will require a lot of people to rethink their relationship with their shoes. The shoe might look similar, but the story it tells is completely different. For more on Adidas Outdoor Products, go to adidas.com slash Terex. That's T-E-R-R-E-X. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. There's a lot to learn when you first take up climbing. Technique, terminology, rope safety, bunch of knots, which direction is the front of your harness. It's a lot. Then there's the lingo to describe different types of climbing or individual climbs. Trad, sport, on-site, red point, head point. None of it is stuff that you can just pick up from context. And then there's Flash Foxy, a community for women climbers founded by our guest today, Shelma June. But the name? We had to ask writer James Mills to try and figure that one out. Here he is. Flash Foxy. What does that mean? Well, it's the name of an online community for women climbers founded by Shelma June in 2014. But what does it mean? I could try to explain it, but Shelma does a much better job. To flash something is a climbing term, and it means to complete a climb without falling your first time on that climb. Um, And so it's like an accomplishment within climbing. And for me to do it, Foxy means to do it with style and with a little bit of swagger, you know? Almost three decades before there was such a thing as Flash Foxy, Shelma and her family immigrated to the United States from Seoul, South Korea. It was 1987, and they created a new home in Orange County, California. Her parents had always been outdoors people, and they eagerly sought out adventures in coastal parks, the Sierra Nevada, and even the Grand Canyon. 
So I have an older sister and I have a younger brother. I'm the middle child, classic weirdo middle child. Um, and um, growing up, um, I was definitely somebody who identified as a tomboy. Uh, for several years, I pretty much just wore boys' clothes, except for on Sundays where my mom would force me into a dress for church. Um, and, you know, I think I felt a lot of pressure to identify with one or the other. I feel like for women growing, for girls growing up at that time, there was this real dichotomy. You could either be a tomboy and you, you know, were really outdoorsy and you wore baggy clothes and you hated makeup and dolls and anything like that, or you were like the complete opposite. You were really feminine and you only wanted to wear really, you know, girly clothing and you didn't really do active things. And I feel like there's this real pressure to kind of fit into one of these circles. And um, and then it created this like competitive nature between them where you were kind of constantly rejecting all the characteristics of the other side to further like influence or to further emphasize that you were more the other way. Um, so I think I didn't really think about all those things when I was growing up, but it's something that I think about a lot now, like as I talk a lot about being a woman and being a woman in the outdoors. As a kid, Shelma was a strong competitive swimmer. And when she got to high school, she wanted to play water polo, but there was a problem. Her school didn't have a women's team. Well, actually, um, so I swam competitively for 10 years. I think I started about when I was in fourth grade. And then um, I started playing water polo when I was in high school. And my first year I played on the men's water polo team because there was no women's team in our school district. And the right before my sophomore year in high school, they created a women's water polo team. And, um, and so I was the captain for all three years because there just weren't that many experienced women water polo players when they started the league. And so I really got to experience the kind of camaraderie of like learning a sport with a lot of women together and kind of what that means and how that was very different from my experience of being on the boys team beforehand. Um, so I think that that had a big emphasis on me. And uh, whereas with snowboarding and with surfing, I think I definitely hung out mostly predominantly with boys. And there were a couple girls, but they were, you know, the girlfriends of some of the guys. And we didn't really have a crew of girls when I was in college, there was a crew of, of girls who snowboarded at the local mountain. I was always really jealous of them. I wanted to be, I really wanted to be part of their crew, but I like wasn't cool enough. In college at UCLA, Shelma fell in love with snowboarding. So much so that she arranged her schedule so that she only had classes on Tuesday and Thursday, allowing her to spend Friday through Monday at Mammoth Mountain, about five hours away. When she graduated, she moved to the Sierras and continued to ride and also got into mountain biking. Then in late 2006, she had a bad snowboarding accident that ended her season, but also, in a roundabout way, led her to discover rock climbing. Okay, and now you also suffered a pretty nasty injury um, while you were uh, snowboarding. Tell me about that and what happened. Um, I've had several injuries, but I think the one you're referring to is I broke my arm I broke my arm in 2006. It was the first day of the season. It was so sad. Um, I was on a rail about 10 feet up, and I was doing this maneuver called a nose press, and the front of my boards kind of got stuck, and I f 
fell head over, like my, you know, head over heels and landed on my elbow and broke my humerus on my left arm in half and uh, then proceeded to have three orthopedic surgeries on it over the course of six months, um, including putting a rod in there with a bone graft and that not working and then taking the rod out and putting a plate with uh, six screws and a bone graft from my hip. And so that was a pretty extensive surgery that took me kind of out of active sports for about a year. And then probably about six months after I recovered from that, I ended up having shoulder reconstruction surgery. Um, About 40% of my glenoid cavity, which is like the shallow dish that your shoulder socket sits in, had been chipped away from recurring dislocations. And um, so that they went in and repaired that through a bone graft and did a bunch of tendon and ligament repairs. And that was when, um, that was a surgery where I couldn't do anything where I fall on my shoulder for at least two years or I could re-injure it. And that's kind of when I found climbing. That might not sound like it makes sense, but think about it. If you're climbing with a top rope, you can't really fall more than a few inches. That is, if your belay partner keeps the rope tight. So when a friend invited Shelma to a climbing gym, she went, and she liked it. But she was busy getting her master's degree in public planning, so she didn't pursue the sport. After she moved to New York City to start her career as a public planning professional, though, she had her first experience climbing outside on real rock. That changed everything. Yeah, well, so the first time I went climbing here was actually outside, and I met my climbing partner online, which in hindsight, feels like a terrible idea. Like, people shouldn't do that. Um, but there used to be this website called ClimbFind, and you could connect with other climbers. Uh, and I found my friend, Mike Hong, and thankfully he was an incredibly safe and knowledgeable <laughs> and patient teacher who took me out, and it wasn't a dangerous situation. And we went out to the, to the Gunks, which is a world-class climbing area about two hours north of New York, the first time I got up high, a couple hundred feet up above the ground, I was hooked. I loved it. I loved the feeling, the exposure of being up there. I loved the movement of it. And so I started going to Brooklyn Boulders, which was the only, really the only gym here at the time. And um, it was a really special time in climbing in New York City where there were just enough people who were into climbing to fill up a gym. So everybody kind of knew each other and the community really grew from there. And um, that's kind of where I met all the women that I started Flash Foxy with. Shelma says that back then there weren't a ton of other women doing hard trad climbing, where climbers placed their own protection in rocks to catch them if they fall. She found it really hard to find female partners to climb with. So when she fell in with a crew of other women who had her same skills and passion for the sport, she was thrilled. She created an Instagram account called Flash Foxy to share their stories. I was really excited to meet a group of women who were into trad climbing, who were into going out, into pushing themselves uh, and pushing their skill level and their ability and, and wanting to do it together. So we started going on trips together. We started climbing um, in the gunks on the weekends together. We started hanging out at the gym or hanging out after at the gym and really building a community together. And, um, you know, like Instagram was just a different animal back then too. It, it was like at that time where you could just only take a picture in the app at that moment and post it up. There was no, you know, it isn't the monster that it is now. And 
I just was really excited. I think, you know, I'd been doing sports for so long and to finally have found a community of women that I um, was connecting with, I thought, you know, other women might be excited to to learn about that too because it, it felt really special to me and I wanted to share that. I wanted to celebrate that. And so I just created this Instagram to just celebrate and kind of document our time together. But the photos did more than just capture moments. They created connection points for women climbers. Pretty soon, Flash Foxy had thousands of followers. There were already women climbing. It just we were so dispersed and there was no way to connect or know that there were other women all over the country who were climbing and who were out there. And so the the Instagram account really gave us the ability to connect with each other and find each other and really even start to get a gauge of how many of us there were out there. I think that kind of coupled with um, the explosion of climbing gyms in cities, it's really made climbing accessible in a way that other mountain sports are not available. If you want to try kayaking, you can't try kayaking in the city that you live in. Like you can't try mountain biking. You have to like be committed enough to go somewhere and rent a bike or rent a kayak and get instruction. But you, you know, Climbing has now has such a low entry point, a really accessible entry point that it just has made it much more accessible. And I think for for women just to see more and more, it also creates like an effect of just creating more confidence within each other. Now, I'm going to go She almost saw the potential to spur progress in climbing. She'd been working in community organizing in New York and figured she could apply some of the same ground up approaches she learned to sports. In 2016, she and a few others decided to hold a women's climbing festival. They figured it would be about 40 women hanging out in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains, but when they announced it, 300 women wanted to attend. Several months later, Shelma quit her job to focus on Flash Foxy and the festival full-time. But the build-up to that first event wasn't easy. Yeah, I mean, oh man, it was so stressful because you just like didn't know what it was going to be like. I just was like, in theory, this is what's going to happen. But I don't actually know if anything's going to work out the way that I think it's going to work out. Maybe the timing will be off. Maybe women won't be excited for these things that I've like created. Maybe the clinics will go wrong. Um, so I think there was a lot of stress on kind of just the unknown of how things were going to work, how the spaces were going to work, how the conversations were going to work. Um, and... You know, I'm really grateful for the women who came and were just like open and ready to share their experience together. So the energy of the Women's Climbing Festival is the best part of the entire festival. It's you have this like buzzing energy. It almost is as if we're like drunk on the excitement of all being together. Right. And so everybody's so giddy and open and excited to be there together and and you felt that the first festival right away, and that was so special. One um, of the more interesting projects that Flash Foxy has done was a 2016 online survey looking at how gender affects people's experiences in climbing gyms. It consisted of 28 questions and provided an opportunity for anecdotal feedback. They received more than 1,500 responses that reveal a culture of gender discrimination yeah, and I sexism. The big picture... Uh, there is very, very few people, men or women, who said that they experienced serious violent harassment in the climbing gym. Uh, but 
uh, a large percentage of the women said that they experienced some of these kind of more nuanced um, gestures, whether it's uh, patronizing advice or staring or um, spraying of beta or kind of um, intrusion into their personal space. And when, and everybody, men and women, who said that they saw or experienced it, said that almost always it was from a man. So women said it was from men, and men said even when they saw it, it was from men as well, um, predominantly. Shelma's had her own experiences with harassment and climbing, but she emphasizes the idea that single incidents are significant because they add up to a widespread problem. I think the important thing to point out is that there isn't, it isn't about one big experience. It's the fact that it's pervasive and it happens all the time. And each instance might not seem like a big deal where I'll say, you know, oh, and then this guy came and he assumed I was going to climb this really easy climb. And then a guy will say, well, that's happened to me before. And you're like, yeah, that one instance of it is not a travesty or it's not like a big deal. But if it happens all the time when you go to the gym and like every time or every other time you go to the gym, somebody's questioning your ability and assuming that you are, don't know how to climb or don't know how to climb well, like that's when it starts to really wear on you. It's the same as catcalling. You know, everybody might get catcalled once, but it's not about that one time or that even that one experience being so terrible. It's that it happens all the time. So then you start to think every time I go out, am I going to get harassed because of what I'm wearing because of um, if I walk on that street, do I, should I wear headphones and pretend I can't hear people? Are they going to get angry if I ignore them? Because it happens all the time. And I think that that's one of the big takeaways is that it's not, and that's a, that's the challenging part about microaggressions, right? That in of itself, each of those instances aren't like so horrible, but when it happens all the time, it just pervades your entire being. In addition to Flash Foxy and the Women's Climbing Festival, Shelma is also the co-founder of a production company called The Never Not Collective, which makes films focused on women in climbing. After a hugely successful fundraising effort last year, they're working on an ambitious story that follows five elite female climbers. Yeah, so one, our biggest project this year is a feature-length all-women's climbing film called Pretty Strong. And the idea behind Pretty Strong is that, you know, there have these there have been these climbing films and there's usually like one token woman in this film it's like a bunch of guys and you know women are the climbing female athletes right now are just excelling at such an amazing pace and climbing such like astounding feats uh climbing 9a climbing 9b uh which are grades different difficulty grades and climbing um and we want to just kind of share that we want to share all the achievements that women are doing in climbing right now. And that just hasn't been shown in that way before. And we want to celebrate women in climbing um, to be enjoyed by everybody, not just women. And so last year we did a Kickstarter campaign in the fall. Um, and our goal was $50,000 and we raised it in the first five days of our campaign. And we raised over almost $80,000 through our Kickstarter campaign. Um, through thousands of donations. And that was achieved from the immense support from the climbing community. All the media outlets shared it. A ton of professional climbers shared it and supported it. And a lot of other people shared it too. And I think it just emphasized that there is a desire for that kind of content to be created. 
And so this year we're filming. Uh, we've just started filming. We filmed in Mexico in January on a segment. We're filming other segments throughout the year with kind of a um, tentative release date in the middle of 2019. Do you think that having a new generation of women climbers will make it easier for men to be better <laughs> at so being, being more supportive of women? Especially if you normalize the behavior, if you normalize the presence and the imagery of, of women. I mean... I mean, first guys, I mean, is this an opportunity to perhaps, you know, help us to get a little better? You know, I really want to shift the culture of climbing. I think that, and I've said this before, I think that the culture of climbing was created by the people who were there when climbing started, and that was predominantly white men. And so the culture of climbing, of how we define success, how we define partnerships, how the dynamics of how camaraderie happens, that was all defined by this one subgroup of people. Now climbing is so much more diverse than that. There's more women, there's more people of color, there's more queer folks, there's adaptive folks, and we're just growing and growing, and we're still living in this culture that was defined by one subgroup, right? And what I'm really hoping is the more and more people of all different kinds come into climbing it'll start to shift and it'll have to shift because because we'll just use we'll just experience climbing in a different way and that'll begin to just change how climbing is perceived and how it's experienced from where i'm standing it sure seems like that shift is already underway and not just in climbing If you've been listening to the last few episodes of this podcast, you've heard me speak with a number of changemakers at the forefront of a rising national movement toward an inclusive outdoor community. Thanks to their work and the efforts of many other people and organizations, the face of the outdoors is really starting to change. And it's about damn time. That's James Mills talking with Shelma June. This piece was produced by James and Michael Roberts. It's the end of our series with James. His book is The Adventure Gap. You can find more of his work at joytripproject.com. The Women's Climbing Festival that Chumla mentioned is expanding to a series of events all around the country this year. For more info, go to flashfoxy.com. This episode was brought to you by Adidas and their all-new line of Terex outdoor gear. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine. We'll be back next week talking athletic longevity with Jeff Bercovici. Because you know how you sometimes hear about athletes in their 40s and 50s breaking records and beating 20-year-olds? And you think they're either a genetic freak or they have some sort of magic training regimen that undoes old age. Well, Jeff Bercovici wanted to know which one it actually was. And he's going to tell us next week.